All right, so we are working through uh, this morning's study, uh, continuing on Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Holy Spirit. Uh, So we are coming uh, with part two from chapter nine on the spirit and the body. And if, uh, if we remember from last week, we were talking about um, the role of the spirit related to the body of Christ. Now, uh, does anyone remember who is the one who does the baptizing of the Christian into the body of Christ? Who is the one? Because we, we have the person who baptizes, and then we have the mode, right, um, uh, in or with. So... Do we remember who's the one who baptizes, and then what is it baptized? What is this person baptized with when they're brought into the body of Christ? What's that? The who is Jesus? That's right. That's right. We had that one text, right? First Corinthians twelve thirteen. You're like, all right, I could see this, you know, potentially going either way. But we looked at all those other texts that show that Jesus is the one who's baptizing, and then um, we saw that. Um, uh, that Jesus baptizes um, his people with or in the Holy Spirit, right? Just like we think about baptism with water or in water, right? Being immersed or plunged in water. So, uh, and then it is into his body, right? And that was another way for us to talk about union with Christ, that the Spirit is the one who grants us faith and unites us to Christ. Right, what, what, what you know, older theologians have called vital union or um, uh, things of that nature. So, so then Ferguson goes in, and we talked about this last week, right? We, we ended with this, this phrase or this, this quote from Ferguson where he says, All Christians are thus baptized into one body of Christ. The Spirit is the medium of that baptism. But life in this body is governed by the means Christ establishes for his people's development and growth. In particular, by the ordinances of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and ministry. Now, as I worked through Ferguson again this week, it, um, I ended up, and I talked with Des about this, wanting to slow down because what Ferguson goes into, because then he goes into the Lord's Supper and, and baptism, but thinks about them using the term sacrament, and then what's implied with the term sacrament, right, from a Presbyterian understanding. And what I wanted to do was take a step back and say, okay, how, does, how, how should we think about this when we think about when, when Ferguson says the, um, that this body is governed by the means Christ establishes, and then think through this concept of the ordinances, or what Ferguson calls the sacraments. So, so really, this lesson that was originally going to be one lesson is now going to be two lessons. And what we're going to do this morning is going to be a little bit more of a historical and systematic theology to help us think about this, right? What are some of these categories that church history provides us? And then next week, we're really going to look at baptism in the Lord's Supper and really take a look from, from a, a scriptural, biblical, theological uh, perspective. So, um, <clears throat> so with that, um, when we ask that question, how does the Lord through his spirit use these two ordinances for his people's development and growth in his body, which is the church? It's really a question... It's like a sub-question, right? Under this larger question. What are the means that the Lord has ordained for the growth of his body? Right? What this 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 broader question, right? So if you think about it, uh, the the question we're asking is we're like taking a step back instead of just looking at the Lord's Supper and Baptism, but now we're asking this question about means, right? These means of grace. We're stepping back and think of it in the sense of like astronomy. Right? We're looking at our one solar system in the particulars, but in order for us to really understand that backdrop and that, and that category, right, it can be helpful for us to zoom out to the whole universe, right? where we think about solar systems, 
right, and galaxies and all that's there, and then zoom back in as that helps provide some of these thought concepts to when we go back to our own solar system. So with that, um, so we think about this. So when we ask this question, what means has the Lord ordained for the growth of his body for the church, right? For the church that he died for, for the church that is his, that he builds. And this question has a public or outward emphasis. Historically, the answer to this question has been what is called the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. And these ordinary means have a public flavor, right? Public as opposed to private, right? Public in this corporate uh, sense. In this uh, corporate, like, uh, think the church gathered, right? Think of the church gathered. And really, this is essentially tied to what we can think of the elements of corporate worship. What are the things that make up corporate worship? So uh, one author, uh, uh, Ryan Davidson, he's defined the ordinary means of grace as the instruments Christ ordinarily uses to birth and strengthen the faith of the elect as he is present among them. So, in order to help us in regards to thinking about some of these categories, what I want to do is use some of, uh, and you'll see that on your, on your handout here, we're going to look at some of the uh, public documents that our Baptist heritage has provided us, right? Even the Second London Confession of Faith, which is you know, our, our church's uh, confession. And then we have the Baptist Catechism and an Orthodox Catechism. And we're going to try to help work through, again, some of these historical categories um, uh, as we try to help think about how does the Spirit work with these means. And then, again, what we're going to zoom into probably the end of the lesson and then really in the next week is baptism and the Lord's Supper. So look with me on your handout at question 93 from the Baptist Catechism. So the Baptist Catechism was uh, put together uh, from uh, the, the, the General Assembly, uh, I believe it was 1693, when the, the association asked that they would put together a catechism similar to that of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And, and then two years later, it was published, I believe, in 1695. You may have heard it under the, uh, the title Keech's Catechism, even though I don't think Keech put it together. Um, so... Uh, but this Baptist Catechism, and look with me at question uh, 93. And if I, can, um, uh, if I can have someone read question 93 and then the answer, which is just marked with A, for question 93. All right, excellent. So we're going to pause there, right, and just use that as kind of a kickoff. So notice that these means that they note are outward and ordinary. Now, Francis Beattie, uh, he helps make a contrast, right, with both the terms outward and ordinary to help us think about them. So outward is contrasted with inward. Outward refers to, like we read, the word as it's read and preached, the, um, thinking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. We think about uh, prayer right, as, as these external or outward means. And then inwardly, the Spirit is at work, right, doing His work in us and then nourishing faith in us. Right? So that would be that, that inward work, but it is through this outward work that Christ works through these means to communicate grace to his people. If you think about it this way, uh, think of the external form like a bottle, right? And then think about the internal uh, matter, which is water, right? So we think of outward as the bottle and inward as the matter that fills it, right? And, those, and that's, but they must work together in order to see that nourishment. And that'll be an important point as we go, uh, go on in a little bit. But then we also contrast 
the ordinary with the temporary, following um, uh, Francis Beatty. He, he notes that these ordinary means are to occur in the weekly rhythm of the Lord's Day meetings. Temporary means are occasional in nature and can come as a result of maybe like a good conversation you have with a brother or sister, right? And it was really edifying, right? Uh, or maybe uh, some afflictive providence that the Lord has put you in, right? And the Lord's using that to sanctify you in, in some way. But that wouldn't be uh, ordinary. But then ordinary is also contrasted with extraordinary, right? Like borderline miraculous, right? These are the or, or, uh, ordinary or normal means. So think of it contrasted with extraordinary like uh, the Apostle Paul, right? Light from heaven, Jesus speaking to him, knocked off his horse, and then he gets saved, right? That does not happen to everyone, right? That is not the ordinary way in which people uh, come to know the Lord, right? That would be extraordinary. And so again, that's what we're trying to communicate here, outward and ordinary. But then it says that these means are effectual to the elect for salvation, right? And, and in one sense, uh, you know, I have a Roman Catholic background, right? Your ears kind of perk up, right? Where you're like, well, hold on, wait a second. Are we talking about salvation through the ordinances, right? And I kind of think about the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Which is in the doing of these things, grace is given, right? Really independent of whether faith or not is there, right? That grace is being added to this bucket. And once you fill up this bucket, right, it contributes um, to that end time judgment. And so a yes or no answer to this question, I think, needs to be qualified. So is this salvation through the ordinances? Well, in one sense, it is no, right? It is not simply by following the motion of the ordinances or by virtue in them uh, that one is saved, right? Because it must be uh, with faith. Um, uh, one must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which comes through the word, which comes through the gospel. But then there's a sense in which it is yes, but this is not salvation in the sense of, you know, you got saved because you did these works. No, that's not what we're saying. We step back. The Bible can use salvation to be in a more general sense, right? Like, um, I, uh, you have been saved, Ephesians 2, right? That past tense, right? 1 Corinthians 1, we are being saved, right? Christ is the power of God, those who are being saved. And then you think of uh, that future tense, that, that great day of judgment, we will be saved, right? You could think of 2 Thessalonians 1. So there's these different tenses that kind of bring out this overall idea, right? And so think of it as this whole package that Christ has purchased for us. And so in the same way that God saves us, by granting us faith through the ministry of the word, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and then God continues to work in his people, right? That present tense saving, right? We're being saved, right? And preserving us uh, for that future day of resurrection, that future day of final salvation, where we get to experience everything that Christ has purchased for us in its fullest and most complete sense. So, so when we read that question, I think that's what the catechism is trying to help us to wrap our minds around, right? When we think about question 93, uh, what, are the or, what are the outward means or the ordinary means that Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? So then we see from question 93, right, it says his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. So turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. And this is a common footnote in, in several, uh, not just in uh, the Baptist documents from this time period, but even from uh, the Presbyterian and the Independents or the Congregationalists of this time frame, right? Where, where they're looking at these texts and seeing similar, similar ideas. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And I'm sure this is a common text uh, that, that you, you have read or... Or, or thought of, and if I can have a volunteer read verses 41 and 42. When you get there, just go ahead and start reading. Acts 2, 41 through 42. Excellent. So we see in verse 41 
These people respond to the preached word by receiving it by repentance and faith, right? So Peter, he preaches. The Holy Spirit works in them. They're cut to the heart. They respond. And then what happens? They're baptized and added to the membership of the local church, right? Uh, where it says uh, that in that day about 3,000 souls were added. But notice what they devote themselves to. We see here several things. That they devote themselves to the word or the word or the teaching of the apostles, right? But, and, 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 and to the fellowship, right? The, 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 the sharing, the, the, the being with one another, um, uh, we see the Lord's Supper, right? When it says the breaking of bread. And then also where it says um, to the prayers, right? And, and this has, again, this public or communal feel, right? The prayers not being a private prayer, but something that is public or when the church is gathered. And so we see this idea of how the, um, uh, following this pattern, right? From, uh, from the early example of the apostles. Now, um, so rarely do I have a physical copy of a book, but since I do in this case, with joy, I will get to show it to you this morning. Um, I do want to recommend, so Benjamin Badome was a particular Baptist uh, in the early to mid 1700s. He has a scriptural exposition of the Baptist catechism. And I found this really helpful. I would commend it to you um, because it it helps you to get an understanding of what are these concepts and categories and passages that they work through to help develop these concepts, right? To develop um, these thought paradigms. So um, now in question 93, one thing he also adds, uh, and, and Matthew Henry also did this, right? You, some, some of you are familiar with Matthew Henry and his you know, exposition on, or commentary on the whole Bible. So when they look at this question, uh, now, Matthew Henry is looking at the, at the Paedo-Baptist, uh, 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 the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But they note that singing was an ordinance that was to be continued and to be understood as part of the ordinary means of grace. And that, I think, is going to be a similar thing that we see when we, when we look into our Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession of Faith. And again, I know this is a, a little treacherous while we're working through these historical categories, so I encourage you. Bear with me. Think with me, because we're going somewhere with this. So, <clears throat> so what I want to do is just hit quickly questions 94, 95, and 96 of the Baptist Catechism, because I want to help us understand and see um, where, where this is going, right? This, this means of grace, right? Because where we're going is means of grace in particular with baptism in the Lord's Supper. So, if I can have a volunteer read question 94, the question and answer, all right? And then who will get 95 for me? There we go. All right, what about 96? Any takers going once? There we go. All right, now we're talking. All right, question 94, let's do it. All right, excellent. So, so notice this, right? So the word has primary means, right? And, and we're going to bring this out here in just a little bit. But the word has uh, this primary emphasis. What is it that births faith in an unbeliever? It is the word preached. And how the spirit effectually calls, right, brings someone, draws them to Christ and grants them faith. And, uh, but, it is, it, but it is through the gospel, right? And that, again, we're talking about the ordinary, right? Can someone get saved? They're just reading their Bible? Absolutely, right? Or can someone get saved under some afflictive providence and something with memory, um, you know, from something they heard 20 years ago? Absolutely, right? We're, again, we're just talking about the ordinary. So, but then notice that it is not only that which births, but notice it's also what builds up, right? So this public um, uh, uh, reading and preaching is what builds them up in holiness and comfort, right? But notice it must be mixed with what? It must be mixed with faith, 
right? Remember, it's not in virtue of these things, right? But it must be mixed through faith and that through the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see how these things will, are starting to tie together. <clears throat> All right, uh, question 95. Excellent. And, and remember, when it's saying make it effectual to salvation, it's not saying, right, in that past tense, right, you need to go do these things to be saved. It's saying it in this broader, right, the, the broader sense of salvation that we understand from the Scripture. But these are the means that God uses. And so we see that. All right. And then question 96. Excellent. So notice that. How do baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of grace? Right? It's by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in those that by faith receive them. So it's the Spirit and faith working together. Right? And we're going to see that. So we see this pattern that's developed. <clears throat> So now I want us to look at the Second London Baptist Confession, right? Which is which is the, our, our Confession of Faith, the 1689. And uh, so you can see about middle on your notes uh, in the Second London, it's going to talk about these means. And if I can have a volunteer read uh, chapter 14, paragraph one, uh, where it starts with the grace of faith, who would be willing to read that? All right. Thanks, Harrison. Yeah, go ahead. Yep, perfect. Excellent. So um, notice a couple of those things, right? So really similar to what we just read from the Baptist Catechism, right? We see this overlap between them. And as Jim Renahan says, he says, Faith is worked by the Spirit through preaching and is increased by the means of grace. So we see, right, the work of the Spirit in their hearts, right? And then the which comes to the ministry of the Word and then uh, is built up and uh, it is increased and it is strengthened, right? That being faith by these different means. Now, what we stated earlier, and I want to uh, remind and bring up now, that the ordinary means of grace are essentially tied to the elements of corporate worship, something we said earlier, right? And elements of corporate worship are to be contrasted with what are termed the circumstances of worship. Now, elements refer to the essence, right? What is it that makes up corporate worship as we gather on a Sunday morning? Um, so look with me in uh, the, the, next, the next section down from, um, uh, from the 1689 in chapter 22 in paragraph 5. And so uh, chapter 22 is on uh, religious worship and the Lord's Day. But it's specifying, all right, what, what, what is religious worship, right? It's explaining it, helping us to think about it. But in particular, I want to bring up uh, paragraph 5. So if I can have a volunteer read paragraph 5, all right, here.
All right, excellent. Thank you. So the Reformed tradition has rightly recognized the thrust of the scripture that public worship on the Lord's Day is to be word-centered. It is to be word-focused, right? And I think we've seen, uh, you know, in, in, in different parts, uh, recovery of this and the blessing that, that comes with it. So uh, Ligon Duncan has said regarding the five elements of corporate worship that they are read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible, right? So all related to the word, right? We think of those, of those five. And so, um, and when, we, when Duncan says, see the Bible, he's referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visu- visually depict the gospel. Now, unfortunately, we will not be able to work through these texts to develop this doctrine related to the elements of worship, but what I want to do is commend to you what we just read from the confession and looking at those texts there, right, where where it lays out uh, these appointments uh, from the Lord Jesus and his apostles. So, So tying this back, the Lord Jesus has instituted means to birth faith in the elect and sustain, grow, and preserve saving faith in his people, which is his church, and these means revolve around the essence of corporate worship. And there is, there, there is more that we can say to this, right? Um, but I want us to just walk away and think, right, when we think of ordinary means of grace, we think of the collected, gathered church together and the means that Christ uses through the Spirit and faith in us to strengthen, nourish, and comfort us, right, in our growth. All right, so now secondly, so right, remember, this was to like step back, right? So that was like, hey, Ferguson is hopping in and he's thinking about this idea of communicating grace, right? And baptism in the Lord's Supper. So we want to step back and think there's this bigger theological framework that was understood. So that's what we just surveyed, right? Thinking of these historical categories. But then he zooms in and talks about ordinances and the sacraments, right? Now, when... Let me just pause there. Does anyone have any questions about what we've kind of looked at or, or, or read so far before we keep going into this next part? I do. What exactly yep. does the Lord's Supper mean? Yeah, that's a... Uh, so what does it mean? So the um, uh, it's given by Christ to his people to feed and nourish them. And while they partake, it strengthens them in faith as they're reminded of the gospel and as they, uh, as they partake uh, of the bread and of the cup. Yeah, there's some. If I may, I think you're asking a more practical question. And so the Lord's Supper is, is, what, we, is what you see like, in our services at the end. Yes. I think, you, I think you'd ask it more generally, too. Yeah, so, fully, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so practically speaking, what you see at the end of our service uh, typically, in a lot of um, Southern Baptist churches, you see once a quarter um, is that uh, we'll come together, we'll have the, uh, uh, we'll distribute a little piece of, of uh, a bread or a wafer and a, uh, a cup of either juice or wine, grape juice. And this is uh, symbolic of what Christ did on the night before his uh, crucifixion. And it was, um, uh, and it's, it's representative of the new covenant. It's representative of what Jesus did on the cross. The, the breaking of the bread is symbolic of him giving his body for us. Uh, the blood, the uh, wine the, or the grape juice is symbolic of his blood So it's it's taking the Passover meal and the pork cups that came with some of the tradition of the Passover meal, and then um, transforming it into bringing it to its fulfillment with Christ, because it's pointing to Christ. So now Christ takes it and um, 
makes it more clearly about him. And uh, so that's what we remember. Okay, I think, I think I get it. Like, with, with your answer, and now, I'm just like, I never saw that as a prophetic action when, you know, because that, that's, that's pretty common, like, it's new. Yes. It's pretty common, like, part of the, the gospel right there is the, the, the Last Supper. Yes. Yeah, think of it as it is the gospel in visible form, right? Because we're reminded of Christ broken for us and his blood shed for us, right? And it's and but it, but it's giving a, it's giving this visible picture to it. All right, so yeah, absolutely, yeah, good question. So so in this second part, so right, so so we had this like broader right, you know, we went out to the universe, right, kind of worked through these historical categories, right, thinking about means of grace. Now we're now we're zooming, we're starting to come back a little bit, right, thinking about baptism in the Lord's Supper. How and and, and that was the original question we asked. How does the Lord through his spirit, use these two ordinances for his people's development and growth in his body, which is the church. Now, it is interesting to note that the Second London Confession of Faith does not follow the Westminster Confession, right? So that's, that's the confessional document of the Presbyterians. Or the Savoy Declaration, right? That's the confession of the Independents or Congregationalists regarding the title of chapter 28. Uh, a, a great majority of the Second London Confession of Faith comes from either the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Savoy Declaration and the uh, Platform of Polity, uh, another document for the, uh, the Congregationalists. And in the Second London Confession of Faith, it says chapter 28 of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration state of the sacraments. And something similar happens in the Baptist Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, the Baptist Catechism states, how do baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? Right. So we see there's some intentionality with the particular Baptist not following in the same footsteps, using the term sacrament in the confessional document Right in the Second London, and then also in uh, in the Catechism. Um, now it might give the impression that the particular Baptist rejected the use of the of the word sacrament in totality, right? But I think um, but I think that would be misleading. And uh, additionally, I think some of us, especially with Roman Catholic backgrounds or sacramentalist backgrounds, so maybe you know either Lutheran or Anglican, right? Um, where, uh, where uh, what is understood with sacrament is something very, very different, right? Especially, I think of, uh, like, with the Roman Catholic Church, that's my background, and how um, uh, a, a lot of the different things um, and errors that attend to when they use the term sacrament. Um, and so I think when we hear this word, it can strike at minimum a caution, if not a stronger rejection. But I think we should temper such caution as we look deeper in our Reformed Baptist heritage and make sure when we use these terms that we can understand the heritage and, and what's associated with them. Now, we'll say with the term sacrament, when we look at the term sacrament in church history, in the early church, in the medieval church, we do see this idea where it is used more broadly, right? So it's referring to a bunch of different ordinances, right? And, but then as we get to the time period closer to the Reformation and the Reformation and post-Reformation, it really hones in on baptism in the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> now, um, and, and, we, and, and I think that, that's good for us to be reminded, right? Uh, and as these men in churches were breaking free from many of the ungodly traditions of the Roman Catholic Church, and yet continued to use the word sacrament for baptism in the Lord's Supper, although not in the Baptist Catechism or the Second London, I think it's worth our attention. So now I do want to say by way of qualification that ordinance and sacrament are similar but not the same. And remember, this is like still, we're, we're going through this historical theology, historical systematic, to kind of drive as we get into um, next week's lesson as we think about baptism in the Lord's Supper. Um, so ordinances and sacraments. Ordinances are things ordained by God and sacraments are visible signs 
for spiritual realities that are signified. So think of it this way. Sacraments are ordinances, right? Things that Christ has commanded, but um, not all ordinances are sacraments, right? Because like the reading and preaching of the word is an ordinance, but it's not a sacrament. And so we're going to go into that question. Well, then how should we rightly think of the term sacrament, right? Without the, if you will, Roman Catholic baggage. Uh, And because sacrament is used, right, with our Presbyterian and our Congregationalist uh, brethren and their confessional documents. So so with that to say, look with me on your notes um, at an Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. Now, Hercules Collins was one of the signers of the Second London Confession, right, when they met in the General Assembly of 1689, and, uh, but he, he helped put together this catechism. And again, remember, a catechism, question and answer to help us grow in our Christian faith. But what he did was he took the Heidelberg catechism and basically made it a particular Baptist catechism, right? And, uh, um, and, 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 and I will say, if, if you read the Orthodox catechism, so right, you compare the Baptist catechism and the Orthodox catechism, the Baptist catechism is like... Um, like an engineer wrote it, right? Where it's like technical and it's like boom, 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 right? But you read the Orthodox Catechism, right? Which, which is based on the Heidelberg. And it has this warm feel to it, right? Where you're like responding as you worship. It's very helpful. And I think you're going to see that as we look at some of these questions here from the Orthodox Catechism. So again, remember, this was not a, like a private document, but this was meant to be public and used. In, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then, can you explain the difference, like Baptist catechism? Yes. And then, what's the difference between the Baptist catechism and the Second Lenten Confession? Absolutely. Yep. Thank you. Um, so, a catechism comes from the Greek word katecheo, which means uh, to repeat back, right? So, it's a, it's a method of instruction, um, and it's funny, because it was intended, like, for little children, Right. But to be honest with you, it's really helpful for adults. Like I look at it, and I'm like reminded of so much that I've already forgotten. But it's, it's intended to be this question and answer in a format that's easily memorized. And so you can you can. Yep. Here's yeah. Yes. There's a catechism on theology. Yes. There's a catechism on math. Yes. Math, there's a catechism Language on arts. Single, yeah, yep. Every yep. So it, it, um, it's not used too often. Yes. Today, but that's, that's how, um, and look at how quickly all of the founders got schooled up. We, we had uh, ambassadors when they were 13, 14 years old. Yes. Yeah, so it, it engages the memory. So um, to then your second question, so... So then the Baptist Catechism, and how does that relate to the Second London Confession? No, excellent question. So real quick, like church history lesson on particular Baptists. So uh, in 1644, there were seven churches, right? Because uh, So this is a time of Reformation, late 1500s, early 1600s. And there's a time of Reformation, right, that's happening. And there's a development of the independents or Congregationalists. They're dissenters from the Anglican Church. And what they do... Um, uh, is seven churches gather and they put together a confession of faith. That was the first London confession of these seven particular Baptist churches uh, of 1644. And then uh, there's different time periods of peace and persecution right through this. And then in 1677, they put together the second London confession, which really follows two big confessional documents from that time period in the Reformed tradition. And that's the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is of our Presbyterian brothers, and then the uh, Savoy Declaration, which is um, uh, our Congregationalist brothers. So when you think of people like John Owen, or you think of um, Thomas Goodwin, and, and, and some others. Uh, so it, it helps to kind of tie those in. How does the Baptist Catechism relate to the Confession? So the Confession was adopted by 100 churches in 1689. Uh, where they adopted the confession in their general assembly. So it was an association of churches, and they said, hey, how are we going to work together? Well, we're going to use this, the, uh, uh, the, this, this confession, and it's going to be the basis for our doctrinal unity. 
Well, in 1689, uh, so a couple years later, I think it was 1693, they then said, hey, right, all these other folks have a catechism. We want one too, right? Uh, we want one that's going to be helpful to our people and for, for an encouragement. So then they drafted, um, and it's going to bother me. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember the gentleman's name. I don't remember if it was um, Collins who drafted the Baptist catechism. And then in 1695, they adopted it for the, again, the churches there as a part of that association. So what it was intended to, to take is take the, the Baptist confession of faith but then make it in a way that's really helpful from a memorization standpoint. And like, hey, can you just like simplify it for us, right? Instead of reading like 60 pages, they're like, sure, here's 130 questions or 140 questions, right? They're like, all right, glad. I'm glad we reduced that, right, for memorization. So yeah, so I think, so appreciate you asking that question, right? Because I think that's important to see how all these things come together uh, because it does, it sets the appropriate backdrop when we think about these kinds of categories to do the hard work of theology. Um, all right, perfect. So let's look at the Orthodox uh, that, that, that was put together. Now, the Orthodox Catechism was put together, I think, by Hercules Collins in sometime in like the 1660s, right? So just overall time period. But um, so if I can have a volunteer read, uh, who, who will get 64 question and answer for me? <laughs> all right, great. I saw that nose grab. It qualified. All right. And then who will get 65 for me? All right, and then who will get 66? All right, perfect. All right, go ahead. Okay, 64. Since faith alone makes us partakers of Christ and his benefits, from where does this faith come? A, from the Holy Spirit, who kindles in it our hearts by the preaching of the gospel, B, by other ordinances, C, and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. Excellent. So, <clears throat> notice, um, uh, notice with me that uh, we see the work of the Spirit in, in, in question uh, 66. The Holy Spirit teaches us by the gospel and assures us by the sacraments. So, there's a sense in which what's happening is we're taught, the Holy Spirit is teaching us through the word as it's read and preached, but that there's something that the Lord's Supper and baptism do, which is this work of confirmation or this work of assurance, right? Um, that, I, that I think is really helpful. Um, but it, it's not only uh, in this catechism, but also in the writings of the signers of the 1689 uh, and, and of the particular Baptists who followed. So uh, Steve, Stephen Weaver has an article that's helpful and he notes about some of the, the, the major men uh, who signed the 1689 and how, how they understood and looked at the means of grace, in particular with the Lord's Supper. And he, so he, uh, one of them that he talks about is William Kiffin. Now, William Kiffin, so history lesson, right, to just tie this back. So William Kiffin uh, signed the 1644 London Confession of Faith, pastored for 50 years, and then um, uh, uh, also had helped draft uh, the second London Confession of Faith. So here was someone who basically spanned right the uh, that that whole time period. And uh, uh, Weaver, so looking through, um, he's got uh, so William Kiffin has a tract on the Lord's Supper, and Steve Weaver says Kiffin described baptism as the sacrament of spiritual birth, and the Lord's Supper as the the sacrament of spiritual nourishment and growth 
by which believers are spiritually fed. Or even Benjamin Badome, right, who has a helpful scriptural exposition of the Baptist Catechism. So when he's talking about question 96, he, um, uh, he asks, or, or I'm sorry, the question of the Catechism asks, how do baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation? And so then he does the scriptural exposition. And he says, are sacraments signs? And what he did was he exerted a whole bunch of scripture. And what I want to do is just try to capture the essence of what he says. Are sacraments signs? Yes. Are they outward signs of spiritual and invisible blessings? Yes. Does baptism signify the work of regeneration wrought in us? Yes. And does the Lord's Supper signify the work of redemption wrought for us? Yes. And are these outward signs useful to stir up inward affections? Yes. So, so um, I, think it, I think that's helpful, right? We kind of we survey what is or is not intended, right? Um, what is some of the thought concepts that, that are going into this term? Uh, because I think that really helps set up for what Ferguson goes into, because if, 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 if you've read the book or you're reading through the book, you notice that uh, some of Ferguson's emphasis is on this assurance and grace that is given to believers in baptism in the Lord's Supper, right? And in, in that sense, having this sacramental idea. So then when we go to answer the question, uh, well, then what are the sacraments? I think what we read from Hercules Collins in question 65 in the Orthodox Catechism is helpful, where he says, they are sacred signs and seals set before our eyes, right? So I think like, just take that, right? That I think is the key takeaway that, that, that we want to help and they're ordained of God for this purpose that he, may, that he may declare and confirm by them the promise of his gospel to us, right? And I think that helps capture um, uh, what, what is taking place. So when we think about this, when we think about the Lord's Supper and baptism as sacraments, right, if we use that term qualified, <clears throat> we see this idea of uh, that they are signs and seals, and this is really, really beautiful, right? So, so think about a sign, right? Because that sign is signifying. And that is what God intends for us to do is to use our eyes to see the picture and then to embrace that, that and uh, be nourished by the spiritual reality that is taking place. So when we think of sacrament, Right? We think of sign and then the spiritual reality that it is signifying. But then additionally, it serves as a seal. Right? And think of a seal in the sense of a confirmation or an assurance. But it is a seal or a confirmation that is visible to our eyes. And, and that distinguishes from the other ordinances, right? like preaching or prayer. And what I want to do, and again, this is just to help set the frame for what we go and look at with some of these texts when we think about baptism and the Lord's Supper. But I want us to take that framework and turn with me. Look, look at First, uh, First Peter three. Look at this text in First Peter three with me. And look how Peter words this <clears throat> in First Peter three twenty one. Peter says, in, in verse 20, he's talking about Noah, how they were saved uh, through the ark. Um, uh, they, were, they were brought safely through water. And then in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Right? But then look what he does. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal or pledge um, or a crying out to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So water baptism, right? So he's just using the term baptism now saves you. And so the water baptism, which is the removal of dirt from the body, it's signifying this reception of the gospel that saves us, right? And... Um, and this response to God, uh, which is an appeal to God with a cleansed conscience, 
right? Something that happens when we are spiritually cleansed, right? When we, when we come to salvation. But it is not only this sign, right, where we see this idea where it's talking about baptism and then we see the sign and the thing signified, but it's also a seal. It's a confirmation, right? Where he says, baptism now saves you, right? It is confirming this spiritual reality with our visible eyes. What I want to do, <clears throat> and uh, Burkhoff in his systematic theology, he has a helpful quote, and I wanted to just uh, read it as we, as we come to a close, where he says, the truth addressed to the ear in the word is symbolically represented to the eye in the sacraments. So, to tie all these things back, next week, we're going to specifically think about the Holy Spirit's work in assuring us and nourishing us in baptism in the Lord's Supper as Christ has baptized us into his body with the Spirit. Norm. Yes. Yeah, he says, the truth addressed to the ear in the word is symbolically represented to the eye in the sacrament, the thing, the gospel becoming visible. All right. So any questions before we, we come to a close? All right. All right. Well, let's go to the Lord. We'll close. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would continue to nourish and strengthen us as you, through the Spirit, work to increase and strengthen our faith through, these, uh, through the grace that you give us. Even now as we uh, go to enter into corporate worship, please bless us and strengthen us for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.